In this practice of insight meditation, we are not just concerned with the development of tools and techniques for becoming calm or still or focused, centered, all of which is useful and beneficial, but we are interested in understanding the nature of life, what it is that's most true, most important for our understanding to penetrate. And I'd like to speak this evening with regard to one of the primary themes of the Dharma teachings. I've uh, referred to it briefly already, with regard to the truth of impermanence and change. And uh, this particular aspect of Dharma teachings is really understood to be fundamental, to be at the very core and heart of what we're engaged with here. The fact that things change. It's rather simple, ordinary, in a way, everyday observation. And yet this is regarded and understood, and sometimes it was described, the Buddha described it as the elephant's footprint. It's kind of interesting uh, sort of image to bring forth. And he said the elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses all other footprints. All others are within that. And the teaching, the truth, the reality of impermanence encompasses all things. All that arises is subject to passing away. This truth, this teaching dominates, this reality dominates the world of things. And this human existence, in some way it's like living in rented accommodation. We have this situation that we get to benefit from, to enjoy, perhaps, hopefully, at least some of the time, but we don't get to have this situation forever. Quite a number of years ago, when I was just in the early years of my Dharma teaching, and um, my wife Catherine and I came back to live here in Devon after some, a couple of years in America, at a retreat centre there. And uh, we didn't have a lot of sort of financial resources at the time. And we were very happy when uh, we were offered a place to stay and we just had to do a few small tasks to uh, support an elderly gentleman who lived nearby. And we had a spacious sort of two-bedroom apartment to live in in a lovely um, estate. And uh, it was very nice. We lived there for a year and having been invited to have this place rent-free, at the end of a year approximately... The very kind people who'd invited us to stay sort of came over and asked us if we could please leave because they needed it for something else. They were starting a college there and it was going to be used for some other purpose. So we had to leave. And um, after a couple of years of relatively itinerant living, some good friends of ours bought a house um, on the edge of Dartmoor, not that far from where we live now. And uh, they invited us to come and stay because it was a big house and they wanted some tenants and they were able to offer us a sort of a reduced, less than commercial rate because we were friends. And it seemed, you know, worked quite well with the challenges you have of living and uh, with others. And then after a year and a half, they asked if we would leave. <laughs> and it's kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. It's a bit of a pattern here, it seemed. And, you know, sometimes life is like that. So... 
It's nothing I felt we needed to take personally. There were good reasons for um, both, you know, reflected on there. Are we doing something here? But there were, you know, reasons uh, for those situations to happen. And yet somehow to really reflect on what it means to be human, to have this life, is to see that this body and this mind that we live through and with, it seems, are temporary phenomena. And, you know, we have a very unpredictable landlord. We don't know when we're going to get notice that our tenancy is up. Sometimes you get advance notice. Sometimes you don't. But we do know that it's a tenancy. You don't get to have this forever. And so we're invited in terms of Dharma practice to reflect, to to bring to mind at times the reflection that is really encompassed in the phrase, all that is mine, pleasant, beloved and dear to me, this I will be parted from. All that is mine, pleasant, beloved and dear to me, this I will be parted from. This is the nature of our experience. Things that we love and are close to. People, conditions, circumstances. We and others will die or be separated by decisions or circumstances, accidents. Really acknowledging this is important for us, to let that truth in. And, of course, it's not inappropriate that we might experience some sorrow, some sadness, some grief in the experience of being separated from what we love or care for, what is precious to us, or even in the contemplation and the reflection upon that possibility. Or, in fact, not that possibility, that eventuality of which we are uncertain when it will take place. So it's appropriate and natural that we may have some response to this reflection, to this contemplation. But what's interesting is that we very easily don't really acknowledge the truth of it unless it's happening very soon and we know that it's happening. And so as... uh, Helen was speaking so uh, wonderfully last night with regard to the uh, CEO of you know this big company. In a way, the gift of knowing it was happening and being able to turn his life around with that. Some richness that comes through that. But most of us, most of the time, we don't have that privilege. We don't know what is going to change in our life next. We don't know. Relationships bodily health, homes, jobs. We don't know. The very existence itself, we don't know. And this was something that when the Buddha himself encountered it, when he saw that this was so in his life and in everybody's life, this was what made him turn to look more deeply into his life, letting go of a comfortable life that he had in a sort of a sort of a in a fortunate circumstance of, of that he that he was born and grew up in. And he turned away from that, seeing that everything that we are 
in contact with at some point we will be parted from. He said, why should I, who am subject to birth, ageing, sickness, death, and of course birth, ageing, sickness, death is the story of our bodies. They're born, they get old, at some point they get ill or weak or infirm and then eventually they die. Why should I, who am subject to birth, ageing, sickness, death, spend my life pursuing things which are also subject to birth, ageing, sickness, death, seeing that all things are. Would it not make more sense that myself being subject to birth, ageing, sickness, death, I looked and sought for that which was not subject to birth, ageing, sickness, death. Some sense of possibility that he clearly connected with, that inspired and moved him. And I'm sure it wasn't easy to leave his wife and young child to go out into the wilderness for seven years. During which, in his journey of practice, a lot took place. But he was that he was inspired, he was moved by this reflection, by this contemplation. The things, the people, the situations around me, they're not forever. They're not. It's all around us. No one would argue with it. Anyone here, if asked, do things change, would say, of course they change. We all know that at some level. Even young children know that. But do we live according to that? Because Dharma teachings are premised on the recognition that a lot of the time, our life is not lived in accord with what is true. And that the suffering that arises comes from the, the disharmony born of trying to live that way. The conflict, the contradiction inherent in trying to live not in accord with how things are. If we don't live in accord with the truth of change, we suffer. And so it behoves us to reflect on, do I? Do I really acknowledge and live according to what makes sense if this is true? <clears throat> I remember um, coming to teach a retreat here at Guy House in one very sunny June, um, quite some years ago now, and I was packing. I was going to come and spend the, uh, stay here for the, the whole week, and um, as, as, as you know, all of you do, though I slip home sometimes because it's not far away. Um, and I was coming on this retreat and going to be teaching the retreat and I realised I didn't have enough shirts because all my shirts were designed for mostly English weather, which isn't hot. And I needed, it was really hot and I was really concerned and anxious even. How am I going to deal with this? I'm going to be too hot. I don't like being too hot. I need to have nice shirts. I don't have many nice shirts. Certainly not ones for sort of hot summers. And I went through all this... Ah, 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 ah finally came along with the shirts I had, one or two which were going to be too hot and one of which were a little bit dubious in terms of whether they were tidy enough, you know, not supposed to have holes or rips or stains if we're going to sit at the front. I came along and, you know, it had been this really hot weather and it had been so hot for about a week or ten days. We came to the retreat and on day two the weather changed. It got wet, it got cold, it got really cold. I went back to look at my bag there wasn't a single jumper or sweater in there. A jersey, we call them in New Zealand. Sweater? Jumper here. Huh? Yeah. There wasn't a single one. And I was thinking, how did I do that? How did I come away for a whole week in England 
doesn't matter whether it's June, and not bring a warm thing to keep me warm. Because I was believing when I packed and I was worried about the problem. The problem was that it was going to be hot all week and how would I cope? Assuming so quickly that the weather we'd had for the last 10 days was going to continue for 10 days more. I mean, anyone who lives in England will obviously see the foolishness in that perception. Now, if it lasts for two days in a row, we can be surprised. But how quickly we assume it. And yesterday, same thing I noticed in my mind. It's hot. It's going to be warm weather. And this morning it got cold again, but I still put on the clothes that I thought for when it would be hot. So this morning I was thinking, that was silly. Now it's cold and wet again. But by this evening it's fine. It's actually the right clothes now. It's warm. And it's like, would you look at how that goes on and on? So quickly we make the assumption. And I talk about this topic all the time. And still I catch myself making that assumption that what's happening now is going to continue. And worrying about how I can deal with that sometimes. Or just not worrying about it, but making a plan for how I will deal with it and finding out it doesn't make sense. So... What we recognise, what we can see, probably, I imagine all of you, certainly, you know, I get to reflect on this myself, is that we're operating at times under a misperception. And this is understood as something we, as one of the major delusions of our life, to see what is impermanent as being permanent. To see that which is changing as somehow not going to change. To imagine or believe that the conditions of now will be the conditions of later. Despite the fact that the evidence of our life shows, that's not what happens. It really isn't what happens. So we notice, you know, we have a a meditation sitting. And suddenly, despite the fact that everything was struggle and chaos and pain for the last two and a half days, suddenly the mind goes quiet. And it's like, ah. And before we know it, we're thinking, oh, this is meditation. Oh, great. It's finally, I've been waiting to get here. And then we're starting to think, oh, wow, maybe I'll extend my retreat. This is good. Yeah, I could stay here for a couple of weeks. Hmm. And then, oh, actually, you know, worldly life, I'm not sure I'm into that. Perhaps I'll become a monk or a nun. I'll go live in a cave. I'll just sit and meditate of bliss. You know, and we've immediately imagined that this experience is going to project out into the future forever. Has anyone done that here? Today? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But of course then at that point we realise what a big fantasy story we've built up and how we've left a long way behind this experience that was happening and we're in our heads again, thinking again, fantasising again. We go, oh no, I'm hopeless, I'm useless, I can't meditate, it's no good, I give up. This is, I, I, I'll never meditate again. I, it's always going to be hopeless and miserable and I just get lost in my stuff and we're imagining leaving. And it's like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm gone. Why bother? It's hopeless. And again, we've imagined and projected that that experience is going to be what happens for the rest of the time. So we know that things change in our heads at a certain level, but often all too superficially. The French philosopher Gailleux once observed that if we know but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. I.e. we don't really know, actually. 
If we don't live by what we know, then we don't know it. We just think we know it. But we don't really know it. And so the process of developing insight is the journey whereby we get to compare our actual experience, because we're looking at it, that's what we're doing here, against what we think or imagine or believe about it to see, well, does it correlate? Is it true? And in that, we have the opportunity to correct the misperceptions that may be there in our mind, in our consciousness, and that are leading us to patterns of behavior, to making choices and to activities that are not in accordance with what is actually true and lead us into entanglement, suffering, pain, disappointment and struggle. So this is the movement from blindness to wisdom. From blindness, confusion, delusion, sometimes called ignorance, which is a little bit pejorative for how it's commonly used. But blindness, the word is avidya, a vid. In fact, in the Sanskrit and Pali, is the same root as what we use, you know, in video or vision, is to see. And a negates it, so it's not seeing. The root cause of of, of struggle and suffering that the Buddha pointed to is avidya, not seeing. Blindness. Blindness. Blindness isn't something to judge or criticize or blame someone for. But to help ourselves see rather than judge our lack of clarity is so important here. And we might wonder, how is it that it comes to be? You know, if it's going on all around, if we all know that it's true, if we can hear someone talk about it, and we go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Or if we can be someone who talks about it and is convinced of it and still finds himself playing out the illusion that something's going to continue. What's going on? Misperceptions arise because we don't examine our experience carefully. We tend to make a very quick assessment and jump onto the next thing. Our mind doesn't hardly ever stay in one place long enough, have you noticed that, to really get a good look at things. It tends to go boom, 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 boom. So one of the aspects of the training to stabilize the mind is so we can actually start to look at things. Because otherwise it's like being in a dark room full of unfamiliar objects with a torch that we're swinging wildly on a string, wondering why it is we can't see what's in there or find our way through it. It's just... So we say, okay, get, first of all, get hold of the torch and then actually see what it's like if I point it somewhere. Oh, huh, oh, that's what's there, right. Huh? And we notice over time that we're actually able to stabilize. Even just for a few moments, it's quite useful. You know, we don't have to stay with the torch pointing at a cushion. If it's a dark room and there's a cushion there, I point, oh, yeah. actually, I can see it. It only takes a few moments. But I wouldn't really ever see the cushion if I was swinging the torch on a string. Yeah? So we don't examine the experience well enough to see. And that's why. We fool ourselves again and again. And I have the metaphor that I find really helpful for how this comes to be with regard to permanence, the appearance of permanence, despite the fact things are changing. So imagine if you're driving in a car and you're on a straight road and you're looking out the front of the car at the horizon. What happens as you're driving along at 60 or 70 miles an hour as you're looking at the horizon? Actually, really nothing very much changes. It's way out there ahead of you. You haven't got there yet. And it's pretty much the same. Yeah? 
it doesn't do too much if you're just driving towards it, even at some considerable speed, because it's a long way away. And likewise, you could be looking out the rear window on a long straight, and what's behind you also really wouldn't be changing. Don't do that if you're driving. But if you're a passenger, you know, look around, look out there. Yeah, it's not really changing very much. Because it's also quite a long way away. But if you look out the side window directly at what's beside your vehicle as you're travelling along, what do you see? It's moving so quickly, it's a blur. You can hardly pick out any of the things. It's like, you know, fence posts are going past like in a solid line. Telegraph poles turn up, then boom, 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 boom. The grass is just green blur. And that's actually what you're seeing. That's where you are. In the same way, when we project our mind out into the future, we made a picture of what we think is going to happen. It looks solid. That's what's going to happen. We've based it on a picture from the past, what's behind us, that's only a small piece or fragment of the total experience of the past. It's not the whole of what happened in the past. It's some pieces we've somehow remembered and made a picture out of. To remember what happened in the past would actually take as long as it took to experience it. It would take our whole lifetime to remember our lifetime. We only remember bits. And if we remember something in two moments that took a lot more than that, it's a fragment. And the fragment is fixed. It's the bit we selected and kept, or bits, often. And so it appears kind of fixed. And with our attention, for the most part, we're looking at the past, and then we're looking to the future. We're looking at the past, we're looking to the future. Have you seen your mind do that here? When our mind keeps doing that, it is an able to maintain this appearance of fixity, of solidity, of permanent things. That's how it was. This is how it will be. And we relate in those terms. But here we're asked to look at what's happening right now. To keep letting go of that staring into the future or looking into the past right now. And if we start to do that and sustain that attention to where we are, what do we see? The experience is changing and changing and changing and changing. And thoughts and feelings and sensations and in-breath, out-breath, ripples and flows of experience, sounds, all of this is actually pouring through the moment, pouring through our consciousness, like a river in spate or in flood. Constantly in change, constantly moving. If we look at our experience of mind, body, heart, it's flowing. It's changing. It's different moment after moment after moment. Sometimes a particular element of the experience seems to stay for a while. And if we focus on that, it looks like things are the same. But it's changing. And if we examine it, we find this again and again and again. Sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch. Thoughts and feelings almost feel like the wind is just blowing through, just blowing through. And where are all those thoughts and feelings and experiences and sensations that you had in your life till now? Where are they? Gone. Completely gone. 
We're left with some memories and some impressions and some effects, certainly. But they're just what's here now. And likewise, where are all the thoughts, the feelings, the perceptions that you're going to have in the future? The experiences? Like the body we had 20 years ago, is it the one we still have? Not really. Unfortunately, it would seem. (laughs) And the body we will have in 20 years? It's not waiting for us somewhere in a cupboard. It does not exist. It's not there. But this one will be gone in 20 years. This body, a few cells in our brain and a few other places, will still be here. But most of it will be completely different. The very molecules and cells and tissues will have died and been replaced, if we're lucky. So what's it like to let ourselves be touched by this? To let ourselves really come face to face with this. Like to look the truth of this in the eyeball, so to speak. Not to flinch and go, oh, I don't know, that doesn't feel good. I think I'll, um, what's for dinner? <laughs> you know, that's what we tend to do. Because that vibration, that truth, the reality of the experience of change, of expo- allowing ourselves to be consciously exposed to it. And that's part of what we're doing here. We're trying to avoid the ways, or take away and let go of our tendency to escape from being exposed to this truth, among others, but this one certainly. So we don't escape from feeling and being touched by it. It's kind of unsettling. It's kind of scary. It's like, I'm not sure I want to be impacted. That's often our response. I'm not sure. You know, so we kind of keep all that stuff sort of, we tidy it away. We put it out of sight, out of mind. And culturally, we're really good at doing that. You know, who keeps flowers after they've lost their beauty and shine and started to fade and crumple and wilt and do what flowers do after they've been cut, which is die and fade away? No, we change them, get some nice new ones, which is all right, I don't mind. But in so many ways, we do that. So there's a process that goes on whereby we try and find security or safety or some sense of. Something we can rely on through creating permanence. This is the other reason why we don't see change. Because we're invested in the appearance of permanence or creating a sense of continuity in situations and things in our very sense of ourself at the heart of this. In order to feel safe, to feel okay. And there's a pattern that we start to notice, the sort of the control, the rigidity, the, the sort of the... The tightness that comes from that, it's one of the things we encounter, tightness in our bodies and in our minds. A lot of it is trying to get things, not just to be how we like them, but just even if we don't like them, at least let them stop changing. Let them be something I can rely on, that I can deal with. And so we invest in situations and circumstances and people and places. We start to rely on their permanence and continuity and start to imagine that we are dependent upon that for our existence, our survival or our happiness. When in fact there are no situations or circumstances or experiences or people that we can ultimately rely on to be there forever. Because nobody's there forever and if they happened to be, we wouldn't. 
So there's no way out of this. There's this hope we have that things we invest in will give us security or protect us from the truth of impermanence of change. And if we get attached and hold on, then inevitably we're disappointed and we can feel affected. And and the natural and understandable sense of loss or grief when we lose contact or connection with something or someone that we love or that we care for, that we relied on and treasured, that was precious to us, that quite natural understandable pain or sorrow or loss gets amplified because there's a sense of kind of losing the hope we had the vain and false and forlorn hope we had that this would be forever that we hadn't even noticed we'd added and asked that person or that circumstance to carry on our behalf So Helen Keller, who was a a woman who lived her life without sight, sight or hearing, nonetheless seemed remarkable in her capacity to to kind of find a remarkable spirit within her life. She once said, and really in the context of what I'm talking about here, she once said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure, or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Avoiding danger is in the end no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. What does that mean for us? Really, we are asked to reconsider what we're prioritizing in life. Because if our priority is trying to preserve things that can't be, what hope of satisfaction is there? Now, the reality and the truth of impermanence, of course, it's not all bad news. It's not like, oh, doom and gloom, because, let's face it, things would be pretty crowded without it. You know, if everybody that had ever been here was still here, there wouldn't be a lot of room, particularly in here, you know. Imagine if everyone that ever came here was still here. You think, this is a full meditation hall. The fact that things move on is actually really important. And we notice that when we encounter the difficult how actually we're rather relieved when change kicks in. And, ha, huh, that changed. That difficult circumstance that may have felt like it was going to last forever moves on. It changes or it varies in some way. 
It's really useful when working with difficult circumstances and situations. Not so much be thinking, oh, it's going to change, it's going to change, and we're kind of waiting for it to change, because that's actually kind of like just allowing the aversion to get a grip on us in a way that's not so useful. We're just sort of postponing our life until it changes, and it might take a while, unfortunately. But it's more like noticing when it changes. It punctures the illusion of solidity. And to notice when things change and to really mark that in our minds, ah, it changed. So that the next time it arises, it's a little bit harder to convince ourselves that it's not going to change. When we're dealing with difficult patterns, they change. They constantly vary in their intensity. And at times they're just not what's happening because we're hungry and we're thinking about dinner. We've got our dinner and we're enjoying it. And that whole thing that we were struggling with just for that moment isn't there. Even if it's just a moment, it's showing that there's something, there's a porosity or a permeability to the experiences. They're not solid in the way we imagine them to be. And that really gives a lot of space to allow ourselves to be with the challenging and the difficult. And of course, impermanence, the fact that things aren't forever, this is what really allows us to be touched by beauty. I mean, beautiful things, if you think about it, if you reflect on it, beauty, in its most immediate sense, certainly in my sort of experience, is to do with things that don't last. Like imagine a beautiful sunset. You go out and it's like, it starts off, it's just starting to slowly bring a little bit of yellow and then gold and deepening into red. And it's like, you might say, wow, that's beautiful. You know, I really enjoy sunsets. And it's like, wow. But imagine if it stayed, just bright pink. It's like, that's really lovely, that pink. I love it. It's still really pink. You know, Ten minutes later, it's pink. Hmm, okay. What, you know, really, what's for dinner? It's because of the change that it speaks to us of something. Or flowers, again, they're, they're beautiful because they don't last that long. You know, these days they make those imitations of a flower that look so good that you really can't tell this thing isn't a flower, a real one. That it's a manufactured fake flower until you get up really close. They're that good these days. And yet, you know what's different about them? Because they can have beautiful colours and they can use really nice fabrics and materials, not just cheap plastic ones, but really nice ones. But the thing about them is there's nothing on them that isn't perfect. There's no curling away edge of a leaf or a petal or a frond and actually the very nature of the flower's beauty is inextricable from the fact that it's just revealed and then begins to fade it comes into its fullness and begins to die away and the only things that don't change have no life to them There's no life, and it's the life in things that their beauty comes from. So impermanence is is important in that way. And it also, together with beauty, it reveals preciousness. I mean, the fact that our life is precious, that our connections are precious, it's only because they're not forever that that's so. You know, if we were sure we were here forever, how could we really value it? We just take it for granted. In fact, that's often what we do. And then we don't value it. 
this moment that we have, the preciousness of it. We only take it for granted because we're convinced we're going to get another one and another one. And you know, every day there's people who the day before were sure they were going to wake up the next morning who don't. They just don't. It just doesn't happen for them. And for many years, um, my wife and I, after we were married, we would reflect every time we went in our separate ways, whether for a day or a week or longer. I was travelling a lot then. Just say, you know, I hope I see you again. Because it was true. I did hope I would see her again. And she hoped she would see me again. At least she said so. And just allowing oneself to feel the truth of that. Yeah, there's something precious in so many different ways. And knowing that, you know, in fact, uh, when we got married, we opened the ceremony. Catherine sang a song derived from an Aztec prayer of which the primary refrain is, only for a short while life has loaned us to each other. I still, it's very beautiful. It's like we're loaned here. Not just to our partners or our friends or our family and loved ones, but to life and to all of what life is. It's a, it's a temporary thing. Only for a short while. It can still be sweet and beautiful, but only for a short while. I don't. Th- when we look forward, we sometimes think there's a lot of it. But when we look back, we get a sense of just how quickly it goes. You get that sense when you look back on it? How did I get here? Whoa, it went. It's like that, the whole thing. So reflecting on impermanence can really touch us. It can actually bring us more closely into contact with the preciousness, with the beauty of what's here. To really allow ourselves the fullness of appreciation that's really founded on understanding the, the, the uncertainty, the lack of guaranteedness of this. And... And what it also does is we start to change our relationship to our experience. This is what I've found time and time again. When we see that actually we're living in rental accommodation rather than our own house here, we relate to it very differently. And I had the very interesting experience going back to the story of the friends we moved in with. Um, it, was, uh, it was about 12 years ago and we moved in with these friends when we first moved into this house, it was the first home. No, I'm not sure it was the first home that I. Anyway, we'd, we'd never owned a home. But we moved in as tenants there, and they moved in as owners. And we walked in. Wow, it's a lovely house. It's really big. There's lots of space, nice windows. How nice. How fortunate we felt. They walked in, and they thought, yeah, it's a nice house. I'm going to move that wall. I'm going to open a window up there. We can do this. The floor's going to change. <laughs> and it's all happened now. We're still friends. It's ten years later. But it was very interesting. I was thinking, oh, when it's mine, when I think I own this thing, then I want to make it better. I want to improve it. I want to fix it. But when I'm just here for a short time, I just am grateful for what it's got and kind of say okay to its limitations. It's like that with ourselves. Because so much of our fixing, improving mentality is based on the idea we're going to be here forever. If we knew we weren't here, if we really knew we weren't here forever, it actually would be pretty happy with the condition we've turned up in we'd realise we're pretty fortunate. 
because we are. That's not to say there aren't limitations and genuine difficulties and struggles and places for learning and growth and development. Of course. But we'd still be grateful if we really understood that this is not forever. That we're just tenants here. So again, just letting ourselves be touched, feeling, sensing. What's the resonance of this? This reflection, this reality, in fact. I'm reflect, offering some reflection on it, but it's a reality. This isn't a concept or an idea. It's a felt, a known experience. And as we, as we, beca- <clears throat> as we become a little quieter, as we start to be able to sustain our attention a little more in the meditation, we might start to feel that. In the, in, the, in the movements in the yoga or in the walking or the sitting, we might start to feel the flow, the fluidity, the, the fluidity that is another way of sensing or feeling the, the transience. And it can start to affect us. There's a, um, a phrase or a refrain, a stanza really, I guess, from the, the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the, uh, the teachings of the later Mahayana sort of Buddhist that school, the uh, northern tradition, you could say. And it goes like this, in terms of recognizing this, the, the, the suggestion that it offers, it says, thus you should look upon this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom in a dream. And I find when I hear those words, it sort of evokes that sense of evanescence, of just one thing just flickering into another, those images of these momentary transient phenomena that we all know and are familiar with. And yet if we actually see that it's one of those after another, that's our life. If we see that, then the wisdom of change, the understanding that it brings, it informs how we relate to life. And what it really informs us is with regard to letting go and to letting be. To not grasp hold of and try to maintain or contain or keep the pleasant, the positive, the flattering, the what we think we want or need. To enjoy it when it's there, but to let it go when it moves. And to not resist or avoid or shrink away from that which is difficult or challenging. Of course, to take care of us ourselves as well as we can in the face of difficulty. But at the same time, just seeing things come and they go. It's the nature of experience. And so what does that mean? It doesn't mean we reject that which is sweet and lovely at all. That's a misunderstanding that we sometimes take from this teaching. Oh, it's all impermanent. I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't get involved with things, people, places, you know. Why look at nice sunsets? They're going to fade out, you know. We sometimes hear that attitude, experiences, like, "Mm." but a more skillful way to understand it would be as expressed by uh, William Blake in the, the poem. He says, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. He he really captures the whole talk. 
in just those few lines, which is a measure of relative skill, really. When we try and take hold of that which brings us joy, the very act of trying to take hold of it, binding ourselves to it, the very act of taking hold of it destroys not just the experience, but the sense, when he says the winged life, the sense of uplift, the, in a way the freedom of life is lost in that. But to kiss the joy as it flies, to make intimate contact and the intimacy of a kiss with the joy that's flying, it's moving. To live in eternity's sunrise. This is the dawn of the deathless, of the timeless. Eternity's sunrise. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. So we're asked to to allow ourselves to touch and be intimate with that which is sweet and beautiful. Of course, to really open to this, equally as we're invited to open to the difficult and the challenging, but to allow it also to express its nature, to move and change. And as we allow it to move, actually we open the space for its return. And likewise it says to not reject the difficult. To not in any way regard the difficult as somehow evidence that we're doing it wrong. That we've messed up. That we're no good. It's just the nature of experience. Sometimes it's lovely, delightful, enjoyable. Sometimes it's difficult, painful, confusing and scary. That's how it is for human beings. And to see that there's a a process, the nature that goes on in our life, particularly with emotions and feelings, that they're in motion, they're moving, they flow. Very word, emotion, motion, movement, movement. When we react to the difficult or the scary or the painful by resisting it, by not being willing to feel it, it loses that motion, that movement, and that's when we actually get into trouble with it. But if we can recognize that it's already in the process of changing, because all things are already in the process of changing from this into whatever will come next, then there's a way in which we start to align ourselves with the fluidity, the flow of life, more fully. And Khalil Gibran and the Prophet, he says, if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, Your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And just, and you, and you would accept the seasons of your heart, just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. To understand, as we see, and of course it would be nice if it was summer and sunny and warm all the time, but summer moves to autumn gives way to winter. And in the dark and the cold and the the harshness of winter, that very dying back of winter is the condition from which the new growth of spring bursts forth 
And we see it in the land around us year after year. And we could understand that, of course, it can't be the, the, the sweet freshness of spring or the luxuriant bounty of summer forever. No, it has to drop and fade and dry and die away into winter, and yet it comes back again. So too with the life of our hearts. At times we're in a hard place. There's grief or loss or confusion or pain. And it's like the winter of the heart. And yet, understanding that this is the territory that we move through sometimes. And that from that, the new growth of spring comes. And so to enjoy spring or summer when they're there. Sometimes it's a long one. Sometimes it seems all too brief. But when it's there, we can enjoy it. And when it changes, we need to allow it. Knowing that that which follows summer in terms of autumn and then winter, will equally be followed again by spring. In our hearts, it is like this. So the process of change asks us, seeing the truth of change asks us to live our life in accordance with this truth, which means to let go of our insistence that it fit into how we wish or want it to be and start to trust in the very nature of its process and unfoldment because it is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. And in our attempt to stop it, the image, it's like, it's like by trying to hold on and fix our experience to make ourselves feel safe or secure or get hold of what we think we want or need It's like we get rope burn. It's like trying to hold onto something that's being pulled through our very fingers as we try and grasp it. And the pain and the suffering makes us hold even tighter. But we still can't stop it moving. And the only solution to rope burn is let go of the rope. The very friction is born of our grasping, not of the movement. The suffering isn't inherent in the condition of change. It's in our resistance to it. And in our failure to really take it on board fully. And so in Dharma teaching we come back to this again and again as a reflection for our life, for our practice. And it's life changing. So much of the suffering of life is released in letting go of the struggle. Letting go of the resistance and the grasping. Ajahn Chah, great uh, teacher in Thailand in the twentieth middle of the 20th century, uh, he once said, let go a little and you will know a little peace. Let go a lot and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. This is something that's possible for us. In our life, in this life, to know and to experience, to understand. What happens as we start to let go of the belief that experiences, situations, relationships, circumstances... For all their value and their richness and their support 
and nourishment that we can gain from them. Of course, there's nothing wrong with all of that. But for all that, they're not able to give us lasting satisfaction. They're not able to be the place in which we make our lasting home. Not even this very body and mind, let alone anything further distant from us. As we start to see that more clearly, as the truth of that starts to become compellingly unarguable to us, right in the very core of our being, in the in the cells of our body, not just as an idea in our minds. As we start to get that, we start to stop looking into all those things that are changing for that fulfillment, satisfaction, security, safety and permanence. And only when we stop looking into all those things for that can we really start to see what's here that is not that only when we stop pursuing that which is subject to change can we realize that which is not I was on retreat uh, in India in a, uh, a monastery temple in Budgaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. This in the early years of my practice, and uh, it was a place I really loved. I'd been before, and I was uh, on retreat and in the monasteries as I was uh, walking back and forth, as you've been doing here, we've been doing. At one point, I was just looking at all the puppies, and in the monasteries in Asia, there's sort of a sanctuary for strays, waifs, and lost beings of human and animal natures. And uh, often you find lots of puppies as well as chickens and uh, cats and the occasional donkey and, uh, and that. And the puppies running around, and they just seemed so full of life, so full of joy. And I was just really loving having these little creatures in the you know, there's a sort of sense of the, the brightness and the joy. And they'd come running along when you're walking really slowly and they'd bump into your foot just to check if you're really present or just trying to look good. You know, or you put your food down and they'd help you finish your lunch even though you weren't getting any dinner, you know. And it's like, but there was something just, I just love them. And it struck me at some point, having been here before and been on retreat with these puppies, that at some point I realised, I thought, oh, I was conceiving these puppies as the same ones I'd been with last year. I thought they're the same ones because they seemed the same to me. And then I obviously, oh, yeah, what's that? There's no way those little puppies, you know, little fellas, are the same puppies. They've all grown up. Not all of them have survived. But they're the dogs that are running around now. These puppies are new. And it was kind of there's a moment like it was like the shock of, wow. I always thought they were the same. And yet, they're not the same, but there's something in them that is. And it's like, I had this this thought in that moment. It was like, okay, puppies are impermanent. But puppy nature, that's unchanging. And the nature of what's shining through those beings, and it's shining through, in fact, all beings, all of life, everything, not just beings, the nature of that doesn't change. And that's something we can see and know, realize for ourselves. 
not in a personal for me sense, but in terms of, oh, this is true, this is real. And so, in this practice, we really ask to be interested in the truth of change, to align our relationship with the things of this world in accordance with that wisdom and truth, for the well-being and the wholesomeness and the freedom from struggle that that brings. And we're equally asked to see and to open ourselves through not looking and chasing and pursuing or struggling with those things that change. We open ourselves to being touched, to the direct knowing. It's not a conceiving. It's not something that's born of a sensory experience. It's a direct knowing, realizing, a waking up to the deepest truth of life that is not subject to birth and death, to coming and going. And that's closer to us than the very thoughts that move in our minds. So to allow ourselves to settle into where we are, this moment here and now, more and more deeply, is to allow ourselves to, in a way, start to sink below the surface waves and images, the stories, the patterns, and all of that, which has its place and its importance, but is not the totality. And as we sink, as we settle, as we allow ourselves to drop more deeply, we start to recognize the depth of this life that is really a different dimensionality to the movement in time of things that change and come and go that we call the world. And this dimensionality is always here, always now, always just this. So let's sit quietly together. for a few moments.
So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, come to deeply recognize the changing nature of things, to live in accordance with this truth, and to equally come to realize the Dharma, which is changeless, the truth which is beyond birth and death, that is always right here, always right now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.